This morning we are continuing our study on the doctrines of grace, and so we have come to the fifth and the final point of that theological system known as Calvinism. Now, in keeping with all of the other points of Calvinism, which correspond to the letters that make up the acrostic tulip, this fifth point then starts with the letter P, and it stands for the doctrine known as the perseverance of the saints. However, although perseverance of the saints is the formal name of this doctrine, the truth that it teaches is more commonly known by the expression eternal security. It's often referred to as the belief that teaches one saved, always saved. And the reason, folks, that this doctrine is known by these various titles, these various expressions, is because they all say essentially the same thing. They say essentially the same basic truth that those who have been chosen by God the Father, redeemed by the Son, Christ, effectively called to salvation by the Holy Spirit, will be kept by the power of Almighty God so that they will never lose their salvation, but will persevere to the end and so most certainly will go to heaven when they die. Now, this is one of the most significant doctrines taught really anywhere in the Bible because it is just so practical, it is so relevant, and it it impacts us so very much. And I say that because many of us who know Christ have at some point in our lives asked questions such as, well, can I lose my salvation or have I already lost my salvation because of some specific sin that I've committed or because of some sinful habit that I keep on committing? Some have even wondered if they've committed the unpardonable sin and therefore are destined to be lost forever without any hope because Jesus said that sin, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, will not be forgiven by God. And related to this issue of once saved, always saved, is the problem that many sincere Christians struggle with, and that is they wonder if they've ever been saved. In other words, they struggle with the assurance of their salvation. They know that they can never lose their salvation, but what they question is if they were ever really saved in the first place. You see, these, usually they're very sincere, dedicated believers in Christ, but they look at their lives and they're so sensitive about their sin. They want to do right and honor the Lord that they just see so much sin in their lives that they have these doubts as to whether or not they've ever been regenerated because they wonder how a regenerated person could still sin as much as they do. And so they struggle with assurance of salvation questions. Therefore, since many of us have had questions like this, have had thoughts along these lines, this final point of Calvinism then is extremely important for us to understand because it addresses these types of questions, these types of issues that not only affect our eternal destiny, but they also determine if we're going to lead effective Christian lives or not. And that's because those who question their salvation or those who think that salvation could be lost, they tend to become very self-absorbed too introspective and self-focused rather than being Christ-centered and Christ-focused. But there's another reason why the doctrine of perseverance of the saints is just so very important for us to understand and know and to embrace. It's because this doctrine truly 
glorifies and honors Christ and his work on the cross because it declares that it is by his power that keeps any of us saved rather than our own feeble efforts of keeping ourselves saved. It is his work and not our works that forms the basis for our salvation. In fact, without a proper understanding of God's power to keep a believer saved, the message of the gospel is not only distorted so that it sounds as if salvation depends upon our efforts rather than upon Christ himself, but it is a misunderstanding of God's power that can make the gospel sound very unappealing to non-Christians. If you don't get this right, it distorts the gospel and the message is very unappealing to non-Christians. That was the experience of young Charles Spurgeon before he became a Christian. Both Spurgeon's father and his grandfather were ministers of the gospel. So growing up, Spurgeon had opportunity to observe many, many individuals profess faith in Christ. But he wasn't terribly impressed by what he saw in their lives because many of those who he observed just seemed to fall away from ever following Christ. Now this made young Spurgeon very cautious. It made him very hesitant about accepting Christ. And he was that way because he was afraid that if he began the Christian life, that he would not be able to continue to live as a Christian. In fact, Spurgeon was so certain of this that his fear of moral failure after becoming a Christian is one of the main things that prevented him from accepting the Lord until he was well into his teenage years. But it was the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints that God used to overcome this great obstacle that, that was keeping Spurgeon from Christ. Here's how Steve Lawson in his book, The Gospel Focus of Charles Spurgeon, how he explains Spurgeon's thinking and Spurgeon's dilemma and the truth that finally set Spurgeon free. Lawson writes, the truth of persevering grace, Spurgeon testified, was the enticing bait that drew him to Christ. Before he was saved, Spurgeon observed others who appeared to fall away from their profession. These apparent examples of apostasy made him hesitant to commit his life to Christ. And then, quoting Spurgeon himself, we read these words. Spurgeon said, whatever good resolutions I might make, the possibilities were that they would be good for nothing when temptation assailed me. I might be like those of whom it has been said they see the devil's hook and yet cannot help nibbling at his bait, but that I should morally disgrace myself as some had done whom I had known and heard of was a hazard from which the very thought of which I shrunk with horror. And then we return to Steve Lawson. Lawson says, he adds his own words to what Spurgeon said, and he said this, he said, the thought that Spurgeon might start the journey to heaven but fail to complete it terrified him. As a result, he remained paralyzed in unbelief. But then Spurgeon heard the marvelous truth that all who truly start the Christian life surely complete it. At that point, he could not resist entrusting his life to Christ. Once again, in Spurgeon's own words, he said this, when I heard and read with wondering eyes that 
Whosoever believed in Christ Jesus should be saved. The truth came to my heart with a welcome I cannot describe to you. The doctrine that he would keep the feet of his saints had a charm indeed for me. I must confess that the doctrine of the final preservation of the saints was a bait that my soul could not resist. I thought it was a sort of life insurance, an insurance of my character, an insurance of my soul, an insurance of my eternal destiny. I knew that I could not keep myself, but if Christ promised to keep me, then I should be safe forever. And I longed and prayed to find Christ because I knew that if I found him, he would not give me a temporary and empty salvation, such as some preach, but eternal life which could never be lost. That was Spurgeon's testimony. So folks, it's obvious that the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, this fifth point of Calvinism is a very important one for each of us to understand and to believe because without embracing this truth, not only is the gospel distorted because too much emphasis is placed on us rather than on Christ himself, but in addition, this doctrine is important because all the other All the other wonderful points of Calvinism that surely give praise to God for what he's done for us in securing our salvation, all of them really mean very little without this doctrine. You see, if God doesn't keep one of his elect saved, then it really doesn't matter if he's chosen anyone to salvation or that Christ died for their sins or that the Holy Spirit regenerated them. If someone can lose their salvation, then frankly, we don't have a gospel message worth believing or preaching. Again, it was our friend Spurgeon, who as a pastor, who as a preacher, said these significant words about the doctrine of perseverance. Spurgeon said, if anybody could possibly convince me that final perseverance is not a truth of the Bible, I should never preach again, for I feel I should have nothing worth preaching. Now, before we proceed to study the question of whether or not a believer can lose their salvation. I do want to address some important issues concerning the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. First of all, you should know, you should understand that not all Christians who reject Calvinism believe that you can lose your salvation. There are many believers who, while they don't agree with unconditional election or limited atonement or irresistible grace, Nonetheless, they still hold strongly to the belief that salvation is forever and that a saved person can never lose their salvation and end up in hell. So I want you to know there are many, many in that camp. However, having said that, though this is true, and it is true, you should also know that there are many who reject Calvinism who do believe that a saved person can lose their salvation and end up In hell, this was the view of a man by the name of Jacob Arminius, the founder of a system of theology known as Arminianism, which is a theology that not only rejects Calvinism, but is diametrically opposed to Calvinism. Also, that one could lose their salvation was the view of John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, and thus the reason that Methodists typically believe that salvation can be lost. In addition to Methodism, this is the view of a number of other Protestant denominations, such as the Churches of Christ, the Church of the Nazarene, 
and most, most Pentecostal churches, such as Assemblies of God. So this belief that one's salvation can be lost, I want you to know it, it's held to by many within what I would call the broad circle of Christendom. But it's significant to note that although many Protestants reject the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, they reject it without really understanding it. It's a rejection based upon ignorance. You see, when it comes to this teaching of eternal security, there are a number of common misunderstandings that people have. So let me try to clear up for you some of these misunderstandings before we actually delve into the biblical theology behind the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. You may have heard this from friends. You may have read this. I want to clarify it for you. It may clear up some things. I hope it will clear up some things for you. Number one, misunderstanding number one, some reject the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints because they believe that the teaching once saved, always saved, they believe it leads to ungodly living and that it gives people a license to sin. Since according to this view, if you think that your soul's salvation is secure, then it really doesn't matter how you live. In other words, if you think that you can't lose your salvation, then there's no incentive, there's no motivation, there's no reason to live a godly life. But this belief is absolutely incorrect. And it's incorrect for a couple of reasons. First of all, according to the Bible, we are not motivated to live godly lives out of fear of losing our salvation. In fact, just the opposite is true. The Bible teaches that our motivation to live godly and to obey Christ is, note this, it's gratitude. It's gratitude for his amazing grace in saving our souls for all of eternity. And it's love for him that issues forth in a desire to please him. Paul wrote these very, very critical words that we know and we should embrace and we should understand in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Paul said, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Now watch this, instructing us. What instructs us? The grace of God, of our salvation. Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. Now, Paul says that grace, the grace of God, his undeserved favor, it teaches you. It teaches you what? It teaches you to deny ungodliness in your life, not promote it. The grace of God doesn't give you a license to sin. It tells you to deny yourself, to deny ungodliness. We don't look at God's grace in salvation and think, oh good, now I can sin as much as I want. Or that it's okay to sin because you know what? I'll just confess it and it's forgiven and that's it. No, our attitude is that we are so humbled by the truth that Christ loves us and that Christ died for us, that we don't want to go and sin against such grace and love and we would do anything that Jesus tells us in his word to do. That is what the grace of God teaches us. Many years ago, Donald Gray Barnhouse, former pastor, Bible teacher of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, he used to tell the story about a man from 
a very sinful past who was about to marry a very godly woman, but he was concerned that he might fall back into his old sinful ways once they were married. However, this godly woman, his fiancée, calmed his fears by telling him that though she was confident that he would not fall back into his old sinful ways, she wanted him to know that she loved him and no matter what he did, even if he were to sin horribly, she wanted him to know ahead of time that she would forgive him. That's what she told him. And what was his response to her love? He said, how can I sin against such grace? He didn't say, oh good, I can do whatever I want. I'm secure in her love. No, how could I sin against such grace, against such love? Folks, that's exactly what Paul is teaching us here in Titus chapter 2. Knowing God's grace in our lives, how can we sin against such grace, against such love by leading ungodly lives? The answer is we can't. The answer is we won't. Another passage of scripture that reveals what our motivation should be for godly living is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, where Paul again said, for the love of Christ, meaning Christ's love for us, for the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. What precious words. Paul said that it was Christ's love for us that compels us, that motivates us to live for him. In Christ, we became new creatures and therefore we died to our old way of life and now we are devoted to living for Jesus Christ, not for ourselves, See, our motivation for godliness isn't a fear that we might lose our salvation. It's Christ's death and love for us that drives us, that pushes us, that motivates us to live to the honor and glory of him who died on our behalf. Third passage of scripture that speaks about our motives for following Christ is Romans chapter 14, verses 7 through 9. Paul said, for not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Now, Paul here teaches that once you become a Christian, you no longer run your life. You have a new Lord, you have a new king, you have a new master, it's Jesus Christ, and you now live for him. That is the normal Christian life. Life now is about pleasing Christ, not yourself. Therefore, your motivation for anything you do should be to please him just for the sake of pleasing him, not something you get out of it, but for pleasing him. Certainly not for the sake of trying to keep yourself saved. Now, the second reason why it is absolutely incorrect to think that the doctrine of once saved, always saved, leads to a licentious lifestyle is that the Bible teaches that no one who truly knows Christ will live or can ever live a totally and continuously ungodly manner of life without any repentance at all. In other words, unbroken sin, no repentance at all. In other words, a true believer will never conduct himself with a lifestyle that is habitually, 
all the time characterized by unbroken sin and rebellion. Now, this is not to say that a believer won't have struggles, even experience defeat in certain areas of their life where sin overwhelms them. But it is to say that while they may have areas, certain pockets of life, where they sin, their entire way of life is not characterized by unbroken sin and rebellion against Christ. Let me explain something that is most important. All believers, all believers in Christ, at times slip and they fall into sin. Every single Christian sins. This is exactly what scripture says. 1 John 1, 8. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. So every believer in Christ sins. In fact, the sad reality is not only do Christians sin, but sometimes their sins are quite serious and are of a horrific nature. For example, consider these men and what they did. Noah, the godliest man of his generation, fell into the sin of drunkenness. Abraham, known as the man of faith, failed to trust God not once but twice when he lied about his wife Sarah claiming that she was his sister in order to keep from being murdered. Moses, the lawgiver, violated one of the Ten Commandments when he killed an Egyptian and buried him in the sand to cover his tracks. And David, the man after God's own heart, committed adultery with Bathsheba and then actually orchestrated the events that would lead to her husband's death. And the Apostle Peter denied that he even knew the Lord, not once, but three times denied that he knew him. Listen, we can conclude from this that a Christian is capable of doing anything that a non-Christian might do. But there's a difference. And here it is. Whereas a non-Christian will continue in an ungodly lifestyle without any desire to change without any repentance because all he has within him is a sinful nature that dictates that all he can do and all he does do is continually rebel against God by disregarding his word. However, a true Christian, one who has been regenerated so that he has a divine new nature and that new nature will not allow him to continue in sinful living the way he once did which was in total ongoing habitual rebellion against God. That's the difference. A non-Christian has unbroken sin. There's never repentance. There's never confession. There's never of, I'm sorry, Lord, help me to obey you. But a Christian, while we sin, we get up. We fall down, we get up, we confess our sins, we repent, we move on. Listen to what the Apostle John wrote in 1 John 3, starting at verse 4. Everyone who practices sin, and that's the key, practices sin, also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he, meaning Christ, appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins, and the thought is sins continuously. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin 
because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. It means he can't practice sin. Now in these verses, John makes a contrast. He makes a contrast between a child of God and a child of the devil. A child of the devil would be unsaved people. And he says that the way you can tell if someone is a child of God, the way you can tell if you are a child of God is that you will not practice sin, meaning continue in a lifestyle of disobedience to God. See, John isn't talking about struggling with a particular sin, but with an entire sinful orientation of life. He says that unbelievers, children of the devil, they have an orientation of life that is totally sinful in that they practice sin. That's not the case with those who are children of God because children of God practice, he says, righteousness, meaning that that's their orientation of life. That's their lifestyle. That's the general direction and flow of their lives. It's obedience to God. Even where they blow it, still the general direction is to obey God. Now, it is true that children of God struggle with certain sins. We all do. We all do. We have besetting sins. But even, even with these sins that we battle with, we always, if you're a child of God, you always repent. You don't continue like that. You feel bad about it. You repent, even if nobody else knows about it. You know that God knows about it. And before him, you confess it, you repent, and you ask him to help you to not do this. See, this has to be the way it is in the life of a child of God because even if he backslides for a season, he can't stay permanently backslidden and continuously practice sin. And the reason for this is what John says here. It's because he's been regenerated. His seed, the seed of God, is within him. He's been born again. The life of God coming in the form of a divine new nature will not allow him to live in a permanently ungodly state of rebellion. It's impossible. So the first misunderstanding about the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is that it will give you a license to sin and live any way you simply choose to live. It's simply not true. You may have been told that. You may have friends, relatives who believe that. It's not true. It doesn't stand up under the scrutiny of Scripture, and nor is it the experience of those who have been truly converted to Christ. But that brings us then to a second misunderstanding about the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, which is that everyone who professes faith in Christ is guaranteed to go to heaven when they die, regardless of how they live. Now, let me explain what I mean by this. The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints does not teach that all who merely profess faith in Jesus are certain of going to heaven when they die. Now, the doctrine of perseverance of the saints teaches that all who truly have faith in Jesus and not just a mere profession of faith are assured of going to heaven when they died. You see, just because someone says that they're a Christian doesn't necessarily mean that they're a Christian. There are many people who make professions of faith in Jesus who have never really been born again. Young Charles Spurgeon saw a lot of them through the ministry of his father and his grandfather. We covered this, sort of, in our study on the doctrine of irresistible grace when I told you that there was a problem with altar calls, feeling this pressure that people have to come forward in a service and pray with someone. Some who have responded to the altar call by walking down an aisle at the end of the sermon, they have no clue as to what they're even doing. They don't even know why they're doing this. 
The pastor has put this pressure upon them. The music is playing softly. The lights are dimmed. And they just feel this urge to go forward. They don't even know what they're doing. They don't even know what repentance is. They don't even know what salvation is. But they're coming forward. They've never repented. They've never trusted Christ for their salvation. Often the person who's at the front who greets them, leads them in a prayer of salvation. But they don't even know what salvation is. And then they tell them that you're saved and they just go thinking that they're secure. And yet there's no evidence as time goes by of their salvation, of a transformed life. They simply walk an aisle and continue to live the exact same way they've always lived in disobedience to God's word. And you see, people like this, often people who've done this, presume on the doctrine of eternal security by concluding that they're saved. Why? Well, because they've had this experience. That's why. And sometimes it's been a very emotional experience. So how could my experience be wrong? That's their thinking. They've come down this aisle. They assume that this brings them salvation. They equate this as salvation. Or, or they prayed the sinner's prayer with someone and someone, that person said, well, now you're saved. Or they made some type of verbal profession of faith in Jesus. Maybe even were baptized. But as time goes on, there's no change in their life. There's no desire for the Lord. There's no interest in obeying God's word. And yet they are quite confident quite confident that they're Christians, and if you dare to question it, they're very defensive. They're quite confident they're going to go to heaven when they died, because they've had this experience. And so they feel they can live any way they want, yet still be secure. This is a false sense of security. And Jesus spoke about people just like this when he said in Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, do you get that? Many will say to him on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Listen, make sure you are not in this category because a worker of iniquity or someone who practices lawlessness is someone who lives without any regards for the standards of God. They're just doing their own thing. They may give lip service to Jesus. They may even come to church. Listen, these people were religious, religious, but lost. Their entire way of life is about them, not honoring God by seeking to obey his word. Religious but lost. Involved, very involved in their church, but lost. James Montgomery Boyce years ago said these important words about people just like this. He wrote, we live in a day when many claim to be Christians but are destitute of any true knowledge of the faith and any genuine Christian experience or character. Others know a great deal about religion and may be able to pass even the strictest examination for church membership, but knowledge like this is no guarantee that the individual is actually saved, and membership in a church is no guarantee either. None who are in any of these categories of religious profession can assume that the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints applies to them. Now, these two misconceptions hopefully cleared up in your mind that eternal security does not 
give us a license to sin and that all who profess faith in Christ are guaranteed of going to heaven. Now that you know that, we're now ready to plunge into our study of the fifth point of Calvinism, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, which we'll start today, but we'll have to conclude this on another Sunday when we gather together. So the way I want to approach this doctrine is along three lines, which as I just said, will take another Sunday to complete. But first of all, today I want us to examine the true meaning of the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Next time, I want us to see if this doctrine is taught in Scripture. It's one thing to say we believe it. It's part of our theology, but is it actually biblical? And finally, we'll then deal with some objections to the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, especially some of the verses that those who reject Calvinism use to support their view that salvation, they say, can be lost. So to begin with, I want us to examine in the time we have remaining the true meaning of the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Now, the reason I want us to consider what I'm calling the true meaning of this doctrine is because I think it's very easy to miss the real meaning, the real essence of this great truth. See, it is easy to get the the wrong idea about the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints simply because of the word perseverance. Because the word perseverance makes it sound as if we have to hold on, as if we have to persevere to the end of our Christian lives if we ever hope to be saved. In other words, perseverance makes it seem as if we're hanging on to Christ for dear life. We're clutching him and that we have to do everything we can to keep hanging on, to keep clinging and clutching to him by continuing to exercise faith in Christ because if we falter in our faith, then we will lose our salvation since salvation is based upon faith. Now, is this what the fifth point of Calvinism really means? That we have to keep ourselves saved by persevering in the faith? No, it doesn't mean that at all. As we'll see in a few minutes, true believers do persevere. And we'll certainly see that even more next time we study this. But true believers do persevere to the end. They do continue to believe in Jesus and obey him. But not in the sense of keeping themselves saved. That's not it at all. You see, a better term than perseverance of the saints would be preservation of the saints. Meaning that it is God who preserves us. It is God who keeps us. It is God who protects us. It is God who guards us. It is God who sustains us so that we do persevere to the end. And the Bible is loaded with verses that tell us that God preserves his people. For example, we read these words in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance, which is, watch this, it's an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now notice that Peter is writing to those who are born again. He's writing to true Christians and he tells them that their eternal inheritance is in heaven. 
and it is reserved for them. And then in verse 5, he assures us that we will obtain this inheritance. Why? Because we are protected, he says, by the power of God. See, God is the one who preserves us. He's the one who protects us from ever falling away from him. And his protection is absolutely guaranteed because it is based on his omnipotent power. Commenting on the statement kept by the power of God, John MacArthur, in his notes in his study Bible, wrote this. He said, supreme power, omniscience, omnipotence, and sovereignty not only keep the inheritance, but also keep the believer secure. No one can steal the Christian's treasure, and no one can disqualify him from receiving it. The Christian's response to God's election and the Spirit's conviction is faith. But even faith is empowered by God. Moreover, the Christian's continued faith in God is the evidence of God's keeping power. At the time of salvation, God energizes faith and continues to preserve it. Saving faith is permanent. It never dies. Another passage of Scripture that declares that it is God who preserves his people is that magnificent high priestly prayer of Jesus to the Father in John chapter 17 as he prays to the Father on behalf and for his followers. Listen to what we read in verses 11 and 12, then verse 15, and then verse 20. Jesus praying to the Father, he said, I'm no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. Now notice, several times Jesus asked the Father to keep or to preserve his people. He says that while he was in the world, meaning his ministry, his life, his ministry in this world, he never lost any of them since Judas Iscariot was already lost. Judas was never saved to begin with. But now that Jesus said, now he's going to return to heaven, he asked the Father to keep them, to protect them, his followers from the evil one, meaning Satan, the devil himself. But not only did Jesus pray for these disciples who were presently and physically with him, but notice he also prayed for those who would come to believe on him in the future, he said, because of their words. In other words, the words that they preached, the words that they wrote down, what we today call the New Testament, the words of the apostles. So folks, he was praying for us that all of us who would ever come to believe in him would be kept and preserved and never lose our salvation. Did God the Father answer that prayer? Absolutely. God the Father always answers the prayer of God the Son. The fact that you're saved today is testimony to this fact that Jesus had his prayer answered by the Father. It's guaranteed that no true believer will ever lose their salvation. But of all the passages in the Bible, specifically the New Testament, that teach that God preserves and protects us from eternally perishing. The most significant one, because it's just so direct and it's just so clear, is John chapter 10, verses 27 through 29. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. 
And I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Now Jesus said that his sheep, meaning his elect, those chosen ones, when they hear his voice as he calls them to salvation, they come. They will come. Not only professing faith in him, but actually proving that they have saving faith in him. How? Because they follow him. They don't just walk an aisle. They don't just pray the sinner's prayer. They follow him. And to them, to his sheep, he says, he gives eternal life. And as a result, they will never perish. Now listen closely. In the original Greek text, there is a double negative here for emphasis so that one Greek language authority actually translated this statement this way. They shall not, repeat, shall not ever perish in the slightest. That's accurate. That's the essence of thought. They shall not, no, never, shall not ever perish in the slightest. But notice our Lord doesn't stop there. Notice what he goes on to say. He says that no one will snatch them out of my hand, meaning that no human, no demon, or Satan himself can pull a believer away from him, away from Jesus. And why? Because he says his hand is around us, protecting us, preserving us. But again, the Lord doesn't stop there. Notice what he said in verse 29. He tells us that not only does he hold on to us, but so does the Father. Because he too, the Father too, wraps his strong, omnipotent hand around us so that no one can pull us out of our relationship with Christ. In other words, God holds on to us with two hands, both Christ's and the Father's, to guarantee that he'll never let go of us. But someone might say, well, the Lord may hold on to us in his hands and not let anyone remove us from his grip, but we can remove ourselves. Have you ever heard that? We can remove ourselves. Or, no, yes, it's true, no one can snatch us from him, but we can jump out. That's ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. It's not true at all. No true believer will ever walk away from Christ. They may backslide, but they're never going to reject him. They're never going to walk away from him because in addition to God preserving us, the Bible teaches that all believers persevere by continuing in faith and thus the name of the fifth point of Calvinism, perseverance of the saints. And the next time we study this doctrine together, we'll consider what it actually means to persevere and why believers do persevere. Listen, if you've ever struggled over the question of losing your salvation, I hope that what you've heard today will settle that issue. And I hope it'll give you peace and joy and comfort in your heart because God has promised to preserve you. You don't need to doubt that. You don't need to struggle with that. He has promised to preserve you and he is preserving you. If you're one of his sheep, then you are safe because he has you securely in his omnipotent grip. The question is, are you one of his sheep? That's the real question. Jesus said that his sheep hear his voice and they do what? They don't merely make a profession of faith. He said they follow him. They follow him. They do what his word says. 
That's what it means to follow him. But if you claim to be a believer and you don't follow Christ by obeying or even desiring to obey his word, then I'm afraid you have only made an empty profession of faith. There's no security for you in that. If you've never really repented of your sin and truly trusted Christ and evidenced that by a desire to obey him, then you're still lost and you're dead in your sins. And even though you may have walked an aisle, even though you may have prayed with someone to receive Christ, you still need to believe on him. You still need to repent. So before it's too late, repent of your sin and turn to Christ today. Let this day, the first Sunday of the new year, be the day of your salvation. Now for those those of us who do know Christ. The truth of the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, it is a precious truth. It is a truth that ought to evoke praise and adoration to Jesus for it because it affirms that our salvation is based solely on his death on the cross, not on any work of ours. We're, we're not holding on to him. He's, he's holding on to us. Our salvation is protected. It's preserved by him gripping us, not us gripping him. Frankly, if my salvation was dependent on me hanging on to Jesus, I would have let go a long time ago. And that's true of all of us. Jesus said that no one will ever snatch one of his sheep out of his hand. And for that, we need to give him praise. We need to thank him. We need to adore him. So let's stand for closing prayer. Our Father, we thank you that we've been able to hear your word. Thank you for this magnificent, very comforting doctrine of the perseverance of the, of the saints. Lord, we pray that you'll send us out of here confident in you, but determined to live for you, never to live licentiously. And for those who have struggled in this area, may their hearts be rejoicing because of the truth they've heard. We also pray for those who may never have trusted you. May today be that day that they turn from their sin and turn to Christ to trust him for salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.